Our text this morning is Galatians 5, verses 1 to 6. Let us hear the word of God. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. As the grass withers and the flower fades, God's holy and errant word, it abides forever. May he bless it to us. Liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ. It's one of those things that many of us do struggle to apprehend, to understand, and to walk by. We understand uh, liberty more in a civil sense, in a civil way and means. Uh, We understand, I think, many of us as Christians, how living in this world of sin and misery, it is often easy to see our freedoms uh, civilly uh, taken away from us. Or, as well, it's easy for us in a world of sin and misery to be enslaved by many things. Uh, We can be enslaved by our jobs. Uh, How many people do you know and see? We call them workaholics. Uh, Work is everything to them. If I do not work as diligently as I am, I will not get ahead in life. And that just uh, enslaves them. A job that becomes a taskmaster where you might initially enjoy it, but in the end, that enjoyment is replaced by the depth uh, uh, and necessity of working. We can be enslaved by various substances, and sometimes that enslavement comes by our, our own actions, but other times it comes because of things that happen to us. Uh, we encounter some injury and And uh, the pain is so great that we can easily become enslaved to medications. And those enslavements can be so great that we forsake responsibility financially, socially, and physically in our relationships with people and with society. The one we're most familiar with is enslavement by the government. As a reality, there's no government that exists that does not enslave its people. Taxes is, is one form of that. And while some taxes may indeed be necessary, we quickly realize how restricted our freedoms are when taxations infringe upon conscience matters. We cannot but help support the government's agenda on things like abortion, maid, etc. They tax us. There are many ways in which Our personal freedoms are indeed lost. But the same thing happens within Christianity. The same thing happens within 
our faith and life in Christ. We recognize, and I hope you understand, how we as Christians are able to make this confession that we have a liberty in Christ that transcends the civil, moral culture around us. Christians have testified to that truth over the years. How many Christians have spent time in prison and yet lived free in the Lord? (laughs) How many times have Christians experienced debilitating health and yet expressed a freedom that only Christ can give from their pains and sorrows? How many of us, when death's hour approaches are able to express a true liberty that death is not the end, that the grave is no longer a sting to us. There's no victory there. Christ has set us free from the fears of death. We confess those things, don't we? But there's a reality where Christian liberty gets lost very easily in our lives when our focus is removed from Christ. And then set upon ourselves. This happens even when we strive to stand under the banner of Christian liberty. I know Christians who have expressed, My liberty of conscience will not allow me. And you fill in the blank. And I often like to challenge them. Can you show me in scripture where that says that that's a liberty that Christ has purchased for you? And it's. It's it's one of those banners we like to exalt, but we don't realize that that Christian liberty is not a liberty to be free to do, to live as I or to believe as I please. Christian liberty does not give you the right to believe something that is wrong. And 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 in that in that understanding. We are to be challenged in our lives. But how many of you, when you're challenged about something that you believe, are challenged that maybe you're in the wrong in your faith and our walls go up, our defenses happen, and and we turn away from people because we don't want to be challenged. Christian liberty. We become slaves to things unwittingly. Christian liberty is not about having the freedom to be outside of the oversight of the church or the worship of God. Christian freedom is not a liberty to live in disobedience to God's law, to cast it off and say it no longer applies to our lives. There we're meaning the moral law and the Ten Commandments. And this one might sting a little bit more. But Christian liberty is not a freedom to exercise your conscience if faith and love for God and love for one another and the Lord's word are not the guiding principles of your conscience. There are parameters to these things that God tells us we must abide by. But perhaps one of the greatest dangers as we've been looking at thus far in these four chapters of this letter is how legalism really inhibits liberty. And here we come in verse 1 of chapter 5 and Paul is making an emphatic appeal to all of us. Verse 1 there where he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty 
by which Christ has made us free. You haven't made yourself free to anything. Christ has. It literally says, if you were to take it in the clumsy English translation, for freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand fast in that freedom. Stand fast. Because we're always in danger, as the last part of verse 1 says there, we're always in danger of being entangled in another yoke of bondage. That's why we've spent so much time getting the gospel right, understanding how we are justified, understanding what it means to be a child of God, forgiven, pardoned, accepted by God, adopted by God. That those are things by which God does for us in Christ and in Christ alone. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to be a a child of God, to be accepted by God. There is nothing we can do to make God love us. And yet, what's the mantra of so many people when you ask them if they are going to spend eternity in heaven or hell? And their thought and their their answer to that question, well, I, I hope I'm good enough. We've been set free. That's the first thing we consider here is the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. And to be very succinct, what is that freedom that Christ has purchased for us? It is freedom from the guilt of sin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To to understand that all of our sins have been pardoned by the work of Christ and we receive that pardon by believing in Christ alone. We don't work for it. We confess, God save me by the blood of Jesus. And God says, I will. And all the guilt and punishment that our sins deserve is consumed by Christ. That's freedom. I don't have that guilt hanging over me. That doesn't mean that when I go out and commit a sin against God that I'm not mourning. We read that in Isaiah 61, the the one who is mourning, God says, I will come and give you comfort. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. What are we mourning? God, I sinned against you again. Can you forgive me? They shall be comforted. Of course I can. My son has taken away your guilt. Praise God. And not only the guilt of sin, Sin, but the sting of death. We've been set free from the sting of death. Do you fear dying? And why is it that a Christian can look at death and mourn and grieve and yet still be filled with hope and joy? It's not a contradiction, it's freedom, it's liberty. How many of you are going to die? 
rhetorical, isn't it? But is your heart ready? Do you understand that Christ has taken away the sting of death? What's the sting of death? You standing before God in all of your sins, being judged by God without a Redeemer, without a Savior, without a Mediator, and you having to stand before God and to say, yeah, God, I know I'm a sinner, but didn't I do enough good to get here? And he will say, no. That's the sting of death. That's the victory of the grave. That's the power Satan likes to say he holds over us. And Christ has set us free from that because he died in our place, bearing our punishment in his death so that we can stand before God and say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. You see everything about my life displayed before you. But Christ is my Savior. He has taken that penalty of death away. Death is no longer my judgment. Eternal life is. Isn't that wondrous? Now what did you do to gain that? Did you live a good life? (laughs) No, you what? You believed in Christ. Freedom Christ has purchased. And... The last one, the big three, the guilt of sin, the sting of death, the domain of Satan. He has set us free from that. My, I I think this is one that many of us as Christians don't think of enough. But do we realize what it is to be taken out of a kingdom of darkness and death and brought into a kingdom of light and truth? And to be able to say, I know God. Satan keeps this world blinded to him. The gospel breaks that blind. We've been set free. And, And again, this isn't something that we are capable of ourselves of doing. We don't transplant ourselves into the kingdom of God. God plucks us as a a brand from the fire and he takes us out of that kingdom of darkness and now he says, you're in my kingdom. And we are proclaiming the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his light and glory. And it's all of grace. It's all of grace. It's all received by faith, not by our conduct. John Calvin would speak of this freedom. He said that Christ has taken away what was fearful in death by undergoing that curse for us. And although we must still meet death, we have a calmness, a sereneness, because we have Christ going before us. Your heart is leaping for joy when you think on these things. And it's that liberty that Paul says you need to stand in. Because it's that liberty that's constantly being attacked. He doesn't want you to become entangled by a yoke of bondage. He doesn't want you to become entangled by those traditions that come into the church that overtake the gospel and grace of God. Some of you children, I don't know if you've ever done a three-legged race. (laughs) I have. They're fun to watch. 
not always enjoyable to participate in. But it's one of those races where you tie your leg to another person's leg and you try to walk in unison. Well, that's fine for a race that will end within a minute. Imagine doing that all of your life, trying to walk tied to that person. And, and that's what Paul is, is envisioning here, where he says, do not be entangled again by a yoke of bondage. Why would you tie yourself into thinking that your salvation depends on how good a life you live? How many of you Christians think that? By what you do. And I'm not saying, we're going to get into chapter 5 and 6 to see there's a lot we need to be doing. We're not dismissing the responsibilities we have as Christians by saying this. But if you think your relationship with God is resting on your performance. You've tied yourself to another taskmaster. My friends, God wants your heart. And first and foremost, he has come. And by heart, I mean the fullness of your soul. He wants your mind. He wants your will. He wants your affections. He wants your conscience to be truly pure and holy. He wants you to live for his glory. And always remember that it's him who is at work in you to do these things. Yes, you are to be doing, but your doing will always come short of the greater glory of God. And you need him. And your reliance and dependence is on God in Christ. And his spirit. And what Christ has done in setting us free is he has taken away the necessity of our doing. Grasp that. He's taken away for Israel. And and this was their thing. They kept thinking, we must go to the temple. We must pilgrim our way to Jerusalem. We must be circumcised. We must do all of these things because the Old Testament said we must do all of these things. And how heavy is that? Do you realize the depth of those regulations? Women, do you realize that in the Old Testament time you had a child? you know what you had to do? Especially if it was the firstborn. You had to journey to Jerusalem, offer sacrifices, Uh, suspend yourself from contact with people for about a week, and then say, have the priest come and say, you're clean. And you think, wow, (laughs) you do that for every child? And you want me to have a house full of children? But that's just one aspect. No, no, no. If, If you sinned against another person, Dear people, do you realize what you had to do? You had to not only just go to that person and repent, but you had to come with an offering to the, to the temple and say to the priest, look, I've sinned. Uh, this is my trespass offering. Would you uh, offer up prayers to God for me? On and on and on. And circumcision. The, the thing about all of those Old Testament responsibilities, they were bloody, they were painful, they were heavy to bear, but they were there to teach Israel, do you know the depths of your sinfulness before a holy God? And can you not see through all of this the greatness of the work that must be done to redeem you? All of these things are, are pointing you to the greater 
a type that is in heaven, Christ himself, and the work he will do for you when he comes in the flesh to die in your place and to be that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and to perfect your salvation. That's the freedom that Paul was trying to teach to the church in those early days. We're far removed from it. We don't have those traditions of the Old Testament guidance, but we are sure enough good at making our own traditions today. Talking to a minister friend of mine, and he always dreads the Christmas season because he's got Christmas Eve service, Christmas Day service, post-Christmas service, New Year's service, And it's all these extra services that are part of the tradition of the church that aren't asked for by God. What's what's the one thing God asks for from us? The Lord's Day worship. But we've added all of these extra things and they become expected. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with extra services. We have them sometimes ourselves too. But those are traditions of men. And, and, and we, must, we must realize, what is it that God wants of us? He wants of us to come and worship him in spirit and in truth as his congregation here on the Lord's Day and enjoy this communion with him. That's in relation to just that one tradition. There are others. If you're a Christian, you can't smoke, swear, or drink. Well, those might be good things not to do. But there's a whole lot more to Christianity living a holy life than those three you can't do, you must do we get into those lists where we forget what Christ has done and do you know what Christ has done for us Christ has taken away that necessity that that whole question about what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life. He has taken away that burden. He's resolved that question. Believe on me. Because there's nothing good that you can do to inherit eternal life. You know how hard it is to accept that truth. That's why we must stand in that liberty that Christ has Gain for us the liberty that has set us free. Because it has an end. It actually, as you see down in verse 4, it estranges you from God. Because if you are in that kind of bondage of thinking, what thing must I do to ensure that I keep and maintain my relationship with God? The more you go down that path, the more you estrange yourself from God. And this is the freedom we have in Christ. This is the reality that we are to accept by faith that in Christ, I do not have to earn the Father's love. Jesus has earned it for me. And that's the love I'm standing in. And that's the love of God that the Holy Spirit is pouring out in my heart. It's the work of God for us. My friends, if you are in Christ, if you have set your faith in the Lord Jesus, acknowledging that it is His death and His resurrection 
that has sealed to you the forgiveness of your sins, that acceptance by God and eternal life, then understand that your union and standing with God is not in any way dependent on your obedience or goodness. Now again, that doesn't mean you can be disobedient, but it's all that that factor of understanding the freedom he has gained. Your standing and union with God are not dependent on your obedience or goodness. You're sealed by Christ. How did you attain that standing with God? John 1.12 As many as received Christ, to them he gave the authority to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Christ gives you that authority to be called children of God because you believe in him. How do you know God is your father? The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit. You are a child of God. You think, well, how does that work? He's the one that works in you, that confession. Christ is Lord. Abba, Father. There's the freedom you're to stand in. Christ has purchased it for you. My dear people, if you don't know any truth except that, know that, cling to that truth. My liberty is in Christ. You see in in verses 2 to 4, he brings in the matter of the law and understanding this freedom in respect of the law. Again, it comes back to justification. It comes back to understanding how is it that this wretched, sinful person is able to have all of his sins, past, present, and future, pardoned by God? And how is it that this wretched sinner is able to have a righteousness, a perfect righteousness by which God is able to look and say, I accept you. That's what justification is all about. And it's by that freedom that Christ has purchased for you. I always find it interesting how many people, non-believers, maybe you're one of them, I don't know. But I I always find it amazing how many of them measure their goodness by the Ten Commandments, whether they realize they're doing it or not. Well, I've never murdered anyone, haven't committed adultery, I don't steal, I'm not a liar, and I am doing quite well at not coveting things that other people have. Uh, So I'm pretty good, so God should love me, and I should be able to spend eternity in heaven. Do you go to church? No, 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 I don't need to, I'm a spiritual man. So you measure yourself by God's law, concluding by yourself that you're, you're free from the law, You really don't break it. And in all of your goodness, you think God is going to love you for eternity when you couldn't spend the first 80 years of your life in church worshiping him. Where's the contradiction? It isn't how most people think. But even even for Christians, do you realize how easy it is to substitute your perceived goodness for Christ? We look into that law of liberty and we conclude we're doing all right. We forget. We forget what kind of person we are. 
And here's the thing about the freedom and the law. We, I've already said, we've been set free from the guilt of breaking that law. We haven't been set free from the responsibility of following that law. And if you think that your continued relationship with God is dependent on how well you follow God's law, whether you do that explicitly or implicitly, which I think is how many of us approach. And what does he say in verse 2? That Christ profits you nothing. You see, the danger of not standing in the freedom of Christ is that we begin to lose Christ. No matter how small it is, if you try to bring anything into that justifying work of Christ, then you have made Christ pointless for your salvation. You say, well, how is that happening today? Well, it's happening today. You see it with churches, at least in the Western world, and how small the churches in the Western world have become because of it. But how we're always redefining what is sin and what isn't sin. And how we're, we're at those points where, where we have Christians defining themselves by their perspective of what is and isn't sin. We, we think that we can be such and such a person and still be a Christian. When it's sin we're looking at and not fearing it, not using the law that defines what that sin is and then saying, oh, I must flee from this sin. Because as Paul says here, the freedom that you have in Christ is a freedom that has removed you from the debt of the law. But if you're not standing in that freedom in Christ, you have become a debtor to keep the whole law. Verse 3. You understand what he's saying there? That if we think that we can obey the law to the degree that it must be obeyed and thus be accepted by God for that, we don't realize the debt of breaking God's law that hangs over us. The apostles realized the yoke of the law was not something Israel could ever bear in any generation. Acts 15.10, Peter's the one that says, he says, do you not understand? Nobody, nobody, even our forefathers of Israel, no one was able to bear the law. Because if you stumble in one point, you've broken it all. I had an experience of this myself. I had 40 years of clean driving. I had one minor fender bender that wiped away 40 years of discount. One. And it hangs over you for, I guess, at least six to seven years. Just one. How much more the transgression of one precept of God's commandments. And if this is our attitude towards God's law, that we can improve our salvation by keeping it, if we can maintain our salvation by our keeping of the law, then we have, as he says there, fallen from grace. The end of verse 4. We're substituting our righteousness for Christ. 
very pointedly, if you are trying to justify yourself with the law, you're still bound for hell. And nothing in your standing with God has changed. And if you place the salvation of, the, of your soul in your hands and not in Christ, you've fallen from grace. This is why this is emphasized so much, the dangers of legalism. And the last thing that we see in verses 5 and 6 is how this freedom in Christ allows us to live by faith. You've heard that phrase often in the Old and New Testament, the just shall live by faith. Do you live by faith? If you want to know what a life that lives by faith looks like, read Hebrews 11 and see the litany of characters that that the Hebrew writer points to from from Noah to Abraham to Moses and etc., etc. One that always gets me is when he points to Samson. How many of you picture Samson as a man just and living by faith? When we read of his account in the book of Judges and we're sitting there shaking our heads and saying, I don't think he's a Christian. And yet he's in the hall of faith as a man who lived by faith. Do you understand then, with, with that perspective in mind, what does it mean to be the just who live by faith? We live, we move, we do, we sin, we live out the wholeness of our life unto death. We live it by faith in Jesus Christ who has set me free from the bondage of sin, who has set me free from the sting of death, and who has set me free from the domain of Satan. I'm still a stumbling sinner, but thank God I'm justified in Christ and I live by faith in Him. That's where we are. We do good things. Samson did good things sometimes. But I bet he's praising God that his salvation and his final salvation was not dependent on his life of obedience, but on Christ. Because that's the antitype Samson was. The reflection of the one in heaven. See, notes there. A life of faith is waiting for the hope of righteousness that comes by faith. Do you know what we are waiting for, dear Christians, in this time? We are waiting for that day when sin will be removed from our life. Hasn't happened yet. But the hope of righteousness is one day for eternity. I will be a man of God who loves God with all my heart all my soul, all my strength, and who can love you with perfect love. Is that your hope? (laughs) The just live by faith in that hope. As Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to all who believe. We stand with Christ's righteousness covering us. Praise be to God, because my righteousness 
as Paul would write in Philippians 3, is like the manure pile. That's the word he uses. We have a righteousness from God. And, and being found in Him, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I have eternal life in perfect holiness waiting for me. And we wait for it by faith. Do you, dear people of God? Freedom and faith. And, and that faith, living by faith in Christ, it, it works its way in our lives through love. We're going to pick up on this next week. But that's where he brings us in, in verse 6. It's not what we do as Christians that shows our faith. It's how we love as, as Christians. That shows our faith. Faith expresses itself in love. In love to God and love to others. And this is what becomes the ultimate test of genuine faith. Do you love God? Do you love God? And do you love those who love God? That's harder, isn't it? But do you? Not because of what they do, but because of who they are in Christ. They are children of God. This is the freedom that we are called to stand fast in. Don't give it up for legalism. Be one who lives by faith in Christ. Let us pray.